thank you so much for joining me today. My name is Praveen Sutram, and this talk is about private equity in gastroenterology. I gave this talk at the AGA University Virtual Town Hall, uh, which was held in collaboration with DHPA or the Digestive Health Physicians Association, and it was held in October 2020. I'm the president and co-founder of Next Services. My company works with GI practices in the areas of RCM, a cloud-based EHR and endoscopy report writer called NP. The reason I gave this talk was because of these two books. Private Equity in Gastroenterology was named number one out of 100 best GI books of all time by Book Authority, and I was pretty excited to see that. Scope Forward, my recent book, is on the future of gastroenterology, and it was released in August 2020. It hit number one new release across various categories in Amazon, including private equity. Over the course of my writing on this topic, I could see the GI landscape change firsthand. From two transactions in 2018 to 16 transactions in 2019, and over seven plus transactions as of October 2020. Let's look at it a little bit more closely. In 2016, the game began with Audax investing in gastro health. Move forward to 2018, there were two major announcements. One was the formation of GI Alliance in Texas, and the other was the formation of United Digestive in Atlanta. In May 2019, Amulet got together with the groups in Pennsylvania and created US Digestive Health. August 2019, Physicians Endoscopy and Capital Digestive got together to create an alternative to private equity, a strategic platform. December 2019, Peak Gastroenterology partnered with Varsity Healthcare Partners. And right in the middle of the pandemic, in April 2020, Webster and Gastro One created a completely new GI private equity platform uh, called One GI. And you can download this infographic at nextservices.com slash AGA talk. Let's take stock of all the transactions that have happened in 2020 in gastroenterology, and they have, there have been a handful. The latest being Ohio GI partnering with GastroHealth. If you look at the big picture here, most of the large GI groups are already taken. And the ones that are remaining are either in advanced conversations with uh, one of the existing PE platforms, or they're in the process of creating a new PE platform, or they've decided not to do private equity. And an example there is Minnesota GI. They decided that staying independent was good for them. The same goes with several mid-sized GI groups. Not all are taken, uh, but then there are several conversations that are ongoing. And the vast unknown are the small groups. Many of them are undecided. Some of them have decided to partner with their local regional groups. Uh, several of them are probably just waiting to see what would happen. But regardless of size, every region of the country is shifting and the landscape is changing. Before moving further, uh, it's important to understand what private equity is and how they operate and how they are compensated. 
a pe fund is created by taking money or investments from limited partners and who are limited partners these could be pension funds it could also be university endowments for example harvard uh, may have a university endowment now the limited partners give them their money and say please invest on our behalf uh, and for doing so we're going to give you a management fee and if your investment performs based on the thesis that you've set out to do we will give you an additional bonus and that's typically 20% it's often referred to as carry the pe fund takes this money identifies companies and that becomes part of their portfolio and and they invest cash but they also identify lenders who could give debt for this investment and together with this cash and debt they buy a company an important thing to remember here is that the debt is owned Uh, by the investee or the company that is taking the money and not by the private equity fund after buying the company they restructure the company they typically put together a new leadership or management team and they clean things up and improve the ebitda or profitability and then they sell that company then they distribute the profits and once they distribute the profits they get to earn that bonus that i talked to you about earlier a limited partner takes the returns that they've got and they may choose to reinvest a new fund that the pe fund may form and then the cycle continues there's really no point calling a private equity fund good or bad because this is how the model is this is how it functions let's talk about the ppm failure of the 1990s back then the ppm companies or the physician practice management companies saw vast fragmentation in the medical practice community or industry and they thought we have capital and we have access to management talent so why don't we use that and consolidate uh, the medical practices and they tried to do that because they thought that you know if we add ancillaries and if we add better insurance contracts uh, then we can make a difference and we can create more consolidated entities and and then create value that way but the problem was they underestimated the complexity of the medical practice business and then added to that they charged hefty management fees they had confusing accounting practices and all that led up to their failure they couldn't get the return that they had promised the investors and wall street didn't take that lightly so eventually all the ppm companies shut down except for ficor and 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 then it, it just dissipated and when they were shutting down you know doctors started leaving because they were not paying the doctors and when doctors were leaving they started suing doctors and doctors sued them back so maybe one category that benefited from all this could have been the lawyers eventually everything disappeared and doctors had to rebuild their practices and we don't want that to happen uh, this time round Uh, because an implosion of this kind is not good for anybody in the industry why is private equity happening today and and the big reason is because of uh, these big brothers and i talk extensively about it in scope forward in a chapter called big brothers and the reason i call them so is because they are watching over us and they influence several of the decisions that we make big health systems uh, such as geisinger johns hopkins or hackensack meridian it, that belongs to the state of new jersey uh, that i'm quite familiar with i saw over the last 5 years 
how Hackensack and Meridian, there were two different health systems. They came together. They were one of the large health systems. And eventually, as of today, they're the largest in the state. And every state has a similar story. And they create a certain pressure among the private practice community uh, that physicians now think that either they have to sell to the hospital or in order to stay independent, they might as well do private equity. So it gives them at least a certain degree of independence. On the other side are big insurance companies such as United Health Group. A lesser known fact about United is that the fastest growing division within United is Optum, which is their provider division. And what United is thinking is that, you know, why give away the money uh, when we can create an integrated system and keep it all you know, within the same platform? I've been part of GI conferences where Optum made a strong pitch to GI physicians offering themselves as an alternative to private equity where they were saying that, look, we're offering technology, we're offering a platform uh, that uh, takes care of your insurance contracts and so on. And then we are also offering uh, access to our vast set of primary care practices that we already own. Then come the big retailers. Now, the physicians, private practice physicians are not noticing the effect of big retailers like Walmart. Uh, but they will soon. Walmart has been starting its health centers uh, and they're experimenting with it and they'll go at it much faster and sooner than uh, we anticipate. And then finally, big tech. Everybody from Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Uber, Lyft, if you can club all of them uh, in, in big tech, they're all interested in the healthcare pie and they will come after GI. We shouldn't be surprised that in the future, if someone like a Google comes after the GI community because they're interested not because of the consolidation of private equity or the money aspect of it, as much as the volume of visual data that GI creates, the endoscopies that the GI community creates may be of high value in the big tech community because they are thinking that, hey, like, you know, we can use all this visual data that is being created. And uh, we can run our algorithms and fine-tune our algorithms even more so that uh, we can offer it back to patients and back to physicians. So these big brothers are influencing gastroenterology either directly or indirectly. And one of the major decisions has been about private equity. Now, I know that some of you will be interested in how exactly this happens from start to finish. And I'm going to give you two cases. One is Illinois Gastroenterology Group. And this information uh, is available in Scope Forward. And, and Dr. Larry Kuzinski told me about how they made their decision. They created a three-member investment committee, uh, and all three were physicians. And they began uh, their private equity investigation by the end of 2016. By the beginning of 2018, what they had done is they created a playbook, identified 200 P firms and their investment bank sent it to all of them. Uh, 84 were reviewed and then they got 21 bids. The group interviewed 16 of them and then asked them to rebid by June, July. And then they narrowed all that down to four PE funds and two GI platforms. They had long interviews with all of them and then narrowed it down to three by August. And then finally, they had a letter of intent with GI Alliance in November. In January 2019, the due diligence began. And then finally, they announced 
the deal on July 24th, uh, 2019. Here's another uh, case study for you. And this is uh, US Digestive Health in Pennsylvania. Dr. Mehul Lalani told me about how their deal happened. In 2017, uh, there were two competing groups. They merged to create a 23MD practice. And that consolidation took about 18 to 24 months. And then they thought that, hey, like it's taking so long for us to do it on our own. Uh, why don't we partner with a private equity fund and do it, do this consolidation together with them? Uh, because there has already been massive consolidation on the health system level in Pennsylvania. So then over an 18 month process, they again partnered with an investment bank. They sent the playbook to several PE firms, shortlisted to three and then identified Amulet Capital because they saw them to be a good cultural fit. What happened next is interesting and is very typical with any private equity platform that gets created. They hire a CEO and create an effective leadership team, and they'll do it as long as they think uh, they've gotten it right. It's important to talk about EBITDA, uh, which is a measure of profitability. I'm going to simplify this grossly uh, so that I can communicate certain things. Uh, but then what I want you to take away is that independent of your decision, whether to do PE or not, it is important to keep track of EBITDA or your profitability. At a very, very high level, it is nothing but revenues minus costs. And I've added wastage also here because that keeps eating into your profitability. And let's talk about it. On the revenue side, uh, you must maximize your existing sources of money, which means that not leaving money on the table, uh, you know, which happens a lot uh, in billing uh, or not coding appropriately, uh, not doing AR appropriately. And, and that's what my company, Next Services, does. So we see this all the time. And on the other side is saving money. If you're spending money for certain activities uh, and for, for the activities that you're doing, uh, if you're spending more than you should for a level of quality or a higher quality that you could get elsewhere, uh, but then you are spending more money, that again eats into your EBITDA. Come back to the revenue side, finding new sources of money. And, and these are all the ancillaries and not just ASC pathology anesthesia, but you know, could you start infusion? Could you start other forms of ancillaries, chronic care management, for example, and create newer streams of revenues so that your EBITDA improves? Let's go back to the uh, cost and wasted side. You could use better technology in order to streamline your workflow and if you do that and your resources are used more efficiently, then again, your EBITDA improves. What I want you to remember is that if your EBITDA improves, then your valuation improves because most private equity funded companies are valued by a multiple of EBITDA, which is nothing but better efficiencies in revenue and better efficiencies in your costs. And again, minimizing wastage to the best extent possible. You can download strategies to improve EBITDA on nextservices.com slash AGA talk. So let's now talk about what to think about when considering private equity. And I want to say at the outset that I'm coming in from a neutral perspective. And that's what the GI community values from me. So sometimes it may appear that you know I'm all for private equity and sometimes it will appear 
that I am not for private equity. And I think that is the point. The first things first, regardless of industry, when private equity gets involved, the speed will improve. You will run faster. You will know already that the valuations that PE sets for GI is based on your productivity. In fact, they are assuming a certain productivity or performance in the future years, and they're calculating a certain value based off of that. So like any good coach, they're going to make sure that you run fast. So regardless of whatever you were doing earlier, you will be on a certain rhythm and they will make sure uh, that all the practices involved with private equity will run on that rhythm because that's what you promised them. A makeover. You may or may not have an infrastructure boost, uh, but definitely you will have a management makeover. Now, some deals will involve taking your existing management and involving them with the leadership team. Some deals will not involve that. But what is important to note is that the PE funds will make sure that they will do as many iterations as possible to make sure that the leadership team is right. And we saw that happening uh, with some of the deals that happened or the private equity funds uh, or, or the private equity platforms that got created even in GI. Technology. A lot of the PE platforms that got created made sure that they created dashboards. One of the first things that you will see private equity platforms talk about is that they, they, you know, they have created dashboards. Now, why do you think that they did that? Uh, the reason that they do that is it gives them uh, direct control and access to what is happening on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis and beyond. So that gives them an improved ability to make good business decisions. So that area of uh, technology is definitely going to be deployed. One of the first things that U.S. Digestive Health did in Pennsylvania uh, was that they didn't want their three practices that were coming together to change their EHR. So they invested in a data warehousing platform. Why? Again, to get the metrics that they need uh, on a continuous and regular basis so that they can make better business decisions that would lead to a better and sooner ROI. A very, very important point, and that's on debt. Now, I'm going to talk about it in a future slide about whether bigger is safer necessarily, but I want you to ask you know, this question, and I'm, I'm asking myself out of intellectual curiosity as to you know, why Hertz or Chuck E. Cheese and J. Crew, JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, why did these companies, all of whom are private equity funded, why did they file for bankruptcy during COVID? And the underlying thread is debt. All these companies are borrowed heavily from lenders. And again, like, you know, there's no point blaming the PE guys for this because that is the model. Think of yourself as a lender. You've given money uh, to somebody and that somebody has promised you to pay back that money. Now, something happens, a recession, pandemic, and their ability to pay you back goes away and they can't pay you. You probably will be tolerant for a while, but beyond the point, you're going to think that, hey, like if I have to get any money out of this, I better sell the company, sell that investment and whatever remains of the assets and, and get back as much money as I can. Like So Hertz had 700,000 cars just sitting there and then making no money. So their lenders said that, like, look, we got to file for 
bankruptcy and then we cook as much money uh, you know as as we can and that's what happened so overvalued over leveraged deals will always be at risk and it's important to note that clinical governance in my interview with uh, dr larry kuzinski he kept talking about his concern uh, about clinical governance and essentially the point was this look there are business objectives uh, which is you got to make money and meet your objectives that uh, you set out to go with with private equity but there are also clinical objectives you got to take care of your patients now sometimes these two objectives can be in conflict and when they are in conflict you see articles such as this the new york times article was largely about uh, you know derm practices pushing questionable treatments and and so on and similarly the bloomberg article was about how uh, you know private equity is ruining um, american healthcare now i often like to ask this question and sometimes it sounds strange from a business standpoint but i think you know if physicians own their power uh, they should bring it up in conversations with private equity is that using money as a tool in order to be a force for good can we not use money uh, to make even better patient care uh, on you know on the healthcare side because if we don't ask that question this is healthcare when we multiply bad publicity towards private equity transactions in healthcare eventually it's going to catch up and it, again it is going to result in the doom of private equity uh, in 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 healthcare and we don't want that uh, so it might as well from the outset we want to make sure that we are in alignment uh, with doing good as well as meeting our business objectives build versus buy and then this comes up every now and then what it means is basically either doing it organically uh, and going about it that way or buying other practices consolidating and moving in that direction most pe deals will be about buy scale and sell or recapitalization one of the pe deals that uh, came together in gi space has not done as many transactions and i asked the ceo you know why like you know why didn't you go about buying companies and his response was look we already increased our ebitda even without having to do transactions because we focused on fundamentals and laying good foundation before uh, going out there and buying other practices so again it all comes back to improving uh, ebitda that is what most pe uh, transactions are about and that's what they will look for now when you talk to the private equity platforms that have already formed and ask them uh what their biggest challenges are culture usually is among the top 3 and the reason for that is you know when you're evaluating deals and and so on a uh, practice may look at all the business and the economic a- aspects and they may not think about the cultural change that they're going to go through now when you make a decision you're planting a flag in a certain direction now it becomes your responsibility to make sure that your culture aligns with the culture of the company that you're joining or the platform that you're joining and it becomes your duty to make sure that the private equity fund that you're joining succeeds the platform succeeds uh, but what ends up happening is that uh, f- certain physician practices are used to a certain way of doing things uh, and and then they're happy with the money and the happiness of that money lasts for about 15 minutes and and then after that uh, you know the reality strikes then they see that hey like you know the decisions have changed uh, the, you know i don't have control over these decisions anymore uh, my uh, expectations on productivity are different 
I can't take leaves like I used to take before uh, anymore. And and there are I can't buy things like I used to buy things before. I can't just tell somebody to do this or that. So they suddenly are in for a cultural shock. So instead, it is important to ask and find out and evaluate ahead of time on what uh, this entails and to do it only if you think you're ready for it. And once you make such a decision to be okay to change your culture and move forward because that's what you signed up for. A lot of people are interested in the second bite, so I want to talk about it. A typical PE investment is for a three to seven year period, and that is the mandate that they are going after for, after which they're going to recapitalize the business uh, or, or sell that business to another fund. And that is typically called as a second bite. Uh, and, uh, you know, let me get my crystal ball now and you will notice that it's not a crystal ball at all like because if you think about it in gi uh, p got involved in gastro health in 2016 if you add this number five to seven years uh, to that that puts you in a time frame of 2021 to 2023 so it's inevitable that uh, ordax uh, you know will exit uh, gastro health in that time frame they would want to find a buyer and then sell it to that private equity fund now, to know what is going to happen next is all you have to do is that you have to wear the hat of the future buyer of Gastro Health. Uh, that could be another private equity company. What they're thinking is, hey, like now we have another three to seven year run and we have to take uh, Gastro Health from where it is to the next level, next logical level from that point. And that could be either take it and make it into a large multi-specialty group. Uh, or they could make it into an even larger GI group, or it could go in the direction of technology. And nobody knows the answers to that right now. But I want you to take away that there's not going to be just one second bite, but there are going to be multiple bites, uh, you know, on this apple that you're seeing. And private equity uh, in GI is not going to be a short-term game. It's begun, and the situation is different this time around but it is going to go to the better part of this uh, decade. There are four types of risks uh, you know, to remember. And the first is to do with the business model. And again, I'm telling you based on my personal view on this, I'm not, uh, I'm not going based on research or interviews or any of it, uh, but based on what I have seen, most of the deals or the valuations are being established on EBITDA. And, and then that EBITDA has been calculated based on productivity numbers of physicians involved in the deal in the coming years. And a good part of the productivity numbers and estimations are to do with screening colonoscopies uh, because they are extrapolating the past uh, into the future. Now, my concern here is that what if uh, screening colonoscopies tank uh, because of new technology, uh, and that could come in the shape of DNA testing. For those of you who've read Scope Forward, uh, you exactly know, you know where I'm coming from and what I'm talking about here. So if such a technological risk surfaces, uh, does this business model hold? So if, if that happens, what is the plan B or plan C? Uh, it's important to talk about it. The next is a market conditions and debt. In the book, I talked about the recession and uh, you, you know debt and leverage, which I explained to you a few slides ago. Uh, I never foresaw a pandemic coming, but here it is. We are in recession mode right now. Now, like, so if you've taken on too much debt, assuming that you will be able to pay that back, 
but you can't pay it back, that surfaces as a risk for uh, the P platform uh, and everybody involved in that platform. The third risk is clinical autonomy. And we talked about it. When it goes bad, uh, it is the business side of the practice uh, dictating that, you know, what procedures to be done, how many should be done and pushing procedures and also using physician extenders uh, where they should not be using. And that is about clinical autonomy. Again, it's something important to talk about. Uh, then comes ROI. Uh, we, we're all excited about getting uh, great multiples and valuation. But what it also means is that it creates greater pressure for ROI. When they're going to invest that kind of money, they're going to make sure that they're going to get that kind of a return back too. And, and that's how the model works. So if, if you look at what happened during you know, COVID, all these different companies, and we've talked about it, is that these companies filed for bankruptcy. So my question is, is bigger necessarily safer? Uh, or is there something else here? And, and then I also want you to ask this question that, you know, people get into healthcare thinking that it is recession proof. And again, uh, if uh, we saw anything in COVID, it was this, it is not recession proof. Nothing is recession proof uh, nowadays. The hospitals went into bankruptcies, even a private equity funded ophthalmology platform, you know, filed for bankruptcy. Why? So it's important to ask these questions. Uh, I, I want to leave you with certain uh, thoughts and ideas that will help you explore answers uh, to these questions that I asked. So I want you to ask, you know, where is your industry uh, in this cycle of birth, growth, uh, prime, uh, aging, and death? Let me explain. So during the birth phase, there's high degree of uncertainty. Uh, think about, for example, genetic uh, engineering as a field. If you start a company in that field right now, uh, it's, it's uncertain. We don't know how they're going to make money, whether they will survive, you know, what the sources of revenues are, and so on. But if you go a little bit higher to the growth phase, uh, self-driving cars cross that cusp. Uh, and uh, we know that you know, they, they are going to spread. Uh, they're not, they have not yet spread, uh, but then we're going to see a lot more self-driving cars. If you go e even further on this curve, you reach the prime phase, and we're talking about you know, the Ubers of the world that have gotten to that point in, with their current business model, uh, and the Amazons and Apples, uh, because they are the ones who benefited the most. Actually, Amazon, if you think about it, while all the other industries suffered, Amazon in its online retail business has, has really scaled up right in between the pandemic. And then as you start descending down that curve, you have smartphones. While increasingly we keep seeing new features being added to smartphones, it's really not that exciting anymore. Everybody's got a smartphone and the differentiation among smartphones is not that much. Then comes aging, where an industry is trying to hang on. And if you go further, it's all entropy. And 10, 15 years ago, we all wanted a Nokia phone. Now we can't even say what they do. Uh, and then comes death, and beyond that is Kodak. Like so, so uh, for again, those of you who've read Scope Forward, uh, you know where I'm coming from with this. You don't want to go there. So I want you to ask, you know, where is your practice, and where is your industry, and even choosing the name for your industry or the industry that you're going to belong is going to bucket you in a certain area on this curve. So because if you say that. You know, you're in the traditional screening colonoscopy business, uh, you, you will be at a certain point here. 
But if you say that, you know, you're in the digital health space, you'll be at a different point here. So I want you to make that distinction, you know, in, in your mind, regardless of your size and regardless of whether you are going to do private equity or not. So I want to leave you with a couple of examples. That of Livongo, which is a five, six-year-old company, and Cambia uh, is a strategic investor in Livongo, and they're a hundred-year-old company. For those of you in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you might be familiar with Cambia. They are a hundred-year-old insurance giant. At some point, they decided to be a hundred-year-old startup, and they figured that if they hang on to the uh, insurance space and their existing business model, you know, they would be aging. And and the direction to that is, of course, towards death and closure. That happens to any industry. So what they decided to do uh, is they change themselves uh, and their mindset, uh, and that's always the first starting point. If you go to Cambia's website today, uh, they the first thing that pops up is AI uh, at Cambia. They have an artificial intelligence office. And if you probe around a little bit more, you'll discover that they even have a role uh, for an artificial uh, intelligence officer. That's very forward thinking, uh, you know, as, as you would note. So, so they ended up making investments in companies like uh, Livongo. They have a portfolio of 20 different digital health uh, investments. And what do you think happened? During COVID, Livongo sold uh, to Teladoc for $18.5 billion. Who do you think benefited? Of course, you know, Cambia benefited. And what ends up happening to them? They move suddenly and it almost feels like magic uh, from uh, the aging part of the curve to the growth part of the curve. Why? Because that's that's what their portfolio looks like right now. That's where their mind and attention and energy is going right now. Let us take stock of what we have covered. We started by understanding where GI is in the context of private equity. Uh, we took stock of the forces that were influencing gastroenterology, all the big brothers. We uh, understood what EBITDA is and how to influence profitability and why that's a measure of value, uh, regardless of whether you go in the direction of PE or not. And then we saw a variety of factors that you must consider uh, when evaluating private equity. And then finally, uh, what I gave you was uh, the curve uh, from birth uh, to prime to uh, aging and death and actually developing the mindset and ability to choose where you want to be on this curve. What I want to finally leave you with are these two resources. Scope Forward uh, is my book on the future of GI. Uh, do read it in order to stay relevant and understand you know, where GI is going as a space. And then Next Services is my company. What we do is we help GI practices improve their EBITDA uh, on both on the revenue side as well as the cost side. We help practices uh, maintain and maximize their uh, existing sources of revenue add new sources of revenue uh, in the form of ancillaries. And on the cost side, save cost uh, because of the business model that we operate in and uh, also streamline using technology so that again, all this leads up to better profitability and EBITDA uh, for your practices, regardless of your size, uh, regardless of your decisions and uh, so on.